When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Welcome to Politico's EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, or as I'm sometimes also known, the Scottish guy who looks after the podcast when Ryan Heath is away. This week, we hear from European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker, interviewed live on stage by Politico's Florian Eder. We also hear from a top think tanker, Shada Islam of Friends of Europe, who talks EU-Asia relations and more. And the podcast panel looks at the fight for the EU's top jobs, tries to make sense of Moldova's two governments, and asks what the protocol should be if the US President's son-in-law drops by for a chat. First, let's hear from European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker. He's coming towards the end of his term and he was in reflective mood earlier this week when he was interviewed live on stage here in Brussels by Politico's Florian Eder. The full interview is available on the Politico website, but we're going to play some highlights now focusing on Brexit and the EU's relations with the United States. And we start just after Florian asked him what mistakes Europeans make in dealing with Donald Trump. I think that Europeans made one mistake. The president of the US is the president of the US. He deserves respect because he's the president of the US. And we should not accompany his doings by nasty comments coming from the European side. Although he's a specialist of tweets, I'm never reading these tweets because I'm not following the social network because I don't like to see day after day that I'm drunk, that I'm corrupt, that I'm a, a nobody. So my collaborators, they are giving me the interesting pieces. So I'm not too much bothered by this. I have a good relation with Donald Trump because being a Luxembourger, we don't have so much time to talk to the big animals of the world. Now here, of course, I have all the space I need, but you have to come immediately to the point. No poems, no description of uh, the landscape, although sometimes in the relations with the US, you have to describe the European landscape because this landscape is not so much known to our American friends. Come to the point, say, okay, I agree, I do disagree, you are wrong, you are right. And the US president is not used to interlocutors telling him that you are not right, President Donald. He appreciates. I've got the impression that you actually like him or would like to like him, is that true? You know, when I went to Washington, my wife was telling me, don't kiss Donald Trump. 
And still you did. No, he did. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like him as a person. I have to say. And it's easier if you have a good personal relationship with someone. You are negotiating tough. He's uh, telling me things I don't like, but I do like. He's saying publicly, Jean-Claude is a brutal killer. You do like or you don't yeah, like him? Yeah, and I'm saying, I take this as a compliment. Good. He's saying it would be better for the U.S. to have Jean-Claude as a negotiator for the U.S. than to have him as negotiator for the Europeans. I mean, yes. Let's come to another difficult client, let's say. Adam Fleming here from the BBC has a question on Slido. You regret now countering the lies that were told in the UK referendum. Do you think the contenders to become UK Prime Minister are telling lies? No, no, I, I have the highest respect for Britain. The European Union, the European continent, uh, uh, and a lot to Britain without Britain, Churchill, and all those who were on the ground. We would not be sitting here as we are. So I have the greatest admiration for this great British nation. I have one regret. I was asked by David Cabell during the referendum campaign that the Commission should not intervene in this referendum campaign because he was saying the Commission is even more unpopular in Britain than elsewhere in Europe, which is quite a performance, I have to say. So I did not intervene. And so they were free to say whatever they wanted to say. Lies, rumors, descriptions, figures, which were not corresponding to the basic reality. I think that this was a major mistake. Do you see the same is happening again? Now? That's a different issue. Now they are reorganizing their domestic landscape, new provinces and things like that. That's not a campaign in front of the British people. In this domestic campaign, they are free to say whatever they want because they have competitors so they can say, they can say different things. I don't like what is happening, not, not the fact that they are running now for prime ministership. I have the impression for months now that the main interest for the British political society was how to replace Theresa May and not how to find an arrangement with the European Union. And anyway, the arrangement is there. We have concluded with uh, Theresa May the withdrawal agreement. This is not a treaty between Theresa May and Juncker. This is a treaty between the United Kingdom and the European Union. It has to be respected. It has to be respected by whomsoever will be the next British Prime Minister. Does that mean there would be no renegotiations? There will be no renegotiations as far as the content of the withdrawal agreement is concerned. We can have some clarifications, precisions, additions to the political declaration concerning the future of our relations. Even when it comes to limiting the backstop in time? No. Do you have any particular favorite for next UK Prime Minister? No. <laughs> But if Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister, would that, would that mean that you have to speed up no-deal preparations? The withdrawal agreement will not be renegotiated. It's, it's a decision of the Conservative Party to appoint a new Prime Minister. We have to work with the new incoming Prime Minister than uh, we did with the incumbent Prime Minister. It's not our choice, and nobody asks our opinion. Do you think eventually Brexit is ever going to happen? 
you want a headline for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Unfortunately for you, we will not have that headline. Give me another one. My working assumption is that the British will leave before the 1st of November 2019. My working assumption. That was European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker talking to Politico's Florian Ader on stage in Brussels earlier this week. Now let's hear Ryan's interview with Shada Islam of Friends of Europe. I'm joined now by Shada Islam, who works at the think tank Friends of Europe. She's been a respected journalist for more than 30 years before that. And we've come across each other in many different instances when I was working back in the commission and you were one of the few voices that was really looking at Asian issues and how Europe relates to Asia. And then I also realised that you're one of the few senior women in the think tank world in Brussels, Shadow, and also one of the few people of colour in a senior position working in this EU environment. So firstly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. But you don't like this phrase, people of colour, do you? I remember you said that to me at dinner once a few years ago. I don't. I think I have to get used to it. It's for us in Europe as Europeans. It's very American, maybe also Australian. I've always used the term non-white, or I just say brown and black Europeans, ethnic minorities, and I haven't ever really come face to face with people calling me and others people of colour. So it's maybe just a question of getting used to it. But thanks for introducing the term to Europe. You're very smart, whatever you are. I think that's the reason why we got you on the podcast, let's be clear. So... You're at Friends of Europe, which does a lot of papers, articles. It does a lot of events as well. So it's a big player here in the Brussels scene. What are the priorities that you're looking at and going to be addressing as all of these new influx of MEPs come to Brussels and all the top jobs change over and we get a new policy agenda from the next European Commission? So exciting times and challenging times as well. So I'll focus on three things at Friends of Europe. One is to educate them and inform them about Asia. I think it's very important. It's not just about China. China rising is the defining story of the moment, but there's more to Asia than just China. And I think anyone coming in at this point in the top policy slots needs to know about the interaction, the interdependence, the importance of Asia. And I would really warn them not to get caught in this Sino-American trade and tech war, the existential war, and to stay firm on Europe's interests. So that's my first priority. And equally, I would talk about migration, immigration, Islam. I would say these are important European topics. Islam is part of Europe, always has been. Don't listen to Viktor Orban about that or Matteo Salvini. Listen to the experts, the historians, who tell you that Islam and European Islam is very much part of our historical and cultural landscape. And to treat Islam as a foreign or alien religion is really silly and actually counterproductive. There are European Muslims out there and they're very much part of Europe. So really, that's going to be, Ryan, a bit of an existential battle between the far right and the so-called progressives. So, And it's one, one of thing. the few issues that really unites the far right, where you were saying over lunch that if you look at all of the things that keep them apart, because at the end of the day, they put their own countries first a lot of the time, but there is a thread across 
across it, which is this fear of Islam or this uh, attempt to really minimise the role of Islam in, in European society. So is that something that is going to bring them together and that really needs particular attention? I would say so, Ryan. I think that's what unites them. And let's call a spade a spade. It's Islamophobia, fear of Islam. And my concern is that while they can airbrush many others' ideologies that they espouse, I mean, they're anti-women, but they can pretend not to be. They're anti-gay. They can pretend not to be. Very few now are openly anti-Semitic. But when it comes to Islam, anything goes. Everything goes, right? And my concern is, is not just that they are Islamophobic, but that the mainstream politicians haven't really got a stance which says, yes, Islam is part of Europe. So they're shaky on that ground. And I've just written a piece for Friends of Europe saying there are five easy steps to counter Islamophobia. And I can go through them now if you like, but maybe, yeah, absolutely. maybe later. That's yeah? what we're here for. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So my first step is really... Um, Walk on the wild side, look out your windows if you're male and pale or if you're female and pale. Look outside, see the diversity of Europe today, not within the corridors of EU power, but in the streets of Brussels and many other capitals as well. And secondly, look at these people and recognize them as Europeans. Just because they're Muslims or Jews or Buddhists or Hindus does not mean that they are not Europeans. There is no one true European. We are all part of this Europe and we have different identities and we have fluid identities. My third point is really treat them not as foreigners, not as aliens. And when you're talking about Islam, don't go running to Saudi Arabia, Iran or Egypt or even Pakistan. Talk to European Muslims. There are plenty of European Muslims in places of importance where they know the religion. Talk to them. Don't talk to foreigners and don't let them dictate to you what their vision of Islam is. It's not ours, mm -hmm. right? It's not what Europe stands for. Recruit. Go beyond the normal sort of suspects. Go and recruit people from ethnic minorities. Do that. Mm -hmm. Do that actively. And my final point would be don't victimize Muslims in Europe. They are powerful. They are rock stars. They're sports people. Mm -hmm. They're authors. They're feminists. Talk about Muslim Europeans as just any other Europeans. And if we do that, if we get away from the us and them, I think the mindsets and attitudes will change. Mm -hmm. At least I'm hoping they will. Well, fingers crossed. Now, another thing we were just chatting about over lunch is how you were saying you've never really felt that you've experienced any direct racism, but that often with Europeans, they're very happy to treat you at face value when you're in the room, but it's this kind of racism by omission sometimes where if you're never invited into the room in the first place, then the racism doesn't have to be expressed directly. It's just the effect of not including more people in whatever discussion or decision-making process we might be talking about. Is that kind of a fair reflection of what you think goes on sometimes? Uh, yes, Ryan, very fair. And I have to say kudos to you for raising those issues, not just now in this discussion, but overall for the last five or six years. You're absolutely right. It's racism by omission. People aren't aware of it. I mean, diversity in Europe means, yes, the diversity of Europe. So we're of 28 countries with different ethnicities. More and more, and rightly so, it means women in power as well. And I'm very much part of the feminist campaign as well. More women in top EU posts, more women in power, more women in think tanks and journalism, if I may say so. But the active, uh, proactive, looking out for diverse opinions, for talents outside this little bubble, this white bubble, which some of us, you know, make our way into, 
I think that if we did that, that would be very good for Europe. The diversity of Europe, the talent of Europe needs to be exploited to the full in this very competitive environment. So if we're not reaching out to the black boy or the brown girl, we're really missing out on their expertise, their skills, which we need in order to stand up to the competitors out there. Mm-hmm. Speaking of expertise, experts aren't always very popular these days, but there's something that the EU has always relied upon because the EU is complex, it is technical, it isn't just made up of directly elected officials. So think tanks have always played this very important role in stimulating debate around the European project. And it's really thought of as a project in this town. But this idea that the union isn't complete and more things need to be constructed and think tanks are just always there, basically. And that's unusual. Maybe it happens in Washington, D.C., but I can't think of many other cities in the world where think tanks play such an important role in the public life and the discussion. What's your kind of read on the state of think tanks now in the town? Are you holding your own in this world that wants slogans and tweets as well as detailed reports? We're learning. We're learning very fast. I think we were slower to come into the game compared to the Americans. I think for the last 15 years, maybe 20 even, but I would say the last 15 years, think tanks have become part of our landscape here in Europe, here in Brussels, but also I think other capitals as well. I see that in Germany a lot, of course in Britain, but also in France, in Spain, in Poland, think tanks. And I would say think tanks, uh, Ryan, are between academia and journalism. Mm -hmm. And I think journalists actually make good think tankers because they can speak truth to power, they can be simple in their messaging. You can take a 50-page academic article, mm-hmm. intervention, dissertation, and turn it into 1,000 words, so maybe three pages. You can come up with policy recommendations. I think in this fast-moving world, you need think tanks to get to the point and get to the point fast and with impact. And more and more, we, you know, at Friends of Europe, elsewhere as well, we're all thinking, are we making an impact? And I'll be very, very immodest, and I think think tanks in Brussels are making an impact. We're being consulted more often, along with other civil society organisations, but I think policymakers, parliamentarians, governments are turning to us for some fresh thinking. I think what we're all desperate for here is fresh thinking. And there again, Ryan, if I may, diversity matters. Mm -hmm. So you need the points of view of women, You need the points of view of people who aren't classically white European. You need to go beyond the bubble. Unless you do so, you really lose in the talent and the skills and the freshness of this European project. So as we move forward into this new political cycle, I hope, and I think it will be the case, that think tanks will provide a kind of a channel for the newcomers Mm -hmm. to understand Brussels and the European project a bit better. That's a very good point, actually. You kind of acclimatise people to this town. And another person who's very good at that is Anne Mettler, who runs the European Commission's in-house think tank, the Political Strategy Centre. Now that that's been up and running for four years now, I guess, sort of as a successor to that original thing, I think it was the Bureau of European Policy Advisors was its original name. How do you think that sort of refresh of the Commission's think tank is going? Is it succeeding? Is that the necessary breath of fresh air that they've been looking for? Absolutely. I think it is a breath of fresh air. I think a lot of the work that Anne and her team are doing is really important, not just for the European Commission, but also for those watching and working with the European Commission. It's very impressive. Also, what I like about Anne and her team are they reach out. 
they're reaching out to think tankers and journalists. And I think some of it may be just because they need to, but I think they really do listen. And I think they really do take on board what we're saying. At least I hope that's the case. But she has brought a new concept, a new cultural and knowledge-based concept into the European Commission that I think was really lacking before. So I guess maybe we circle back to one of my original thoughts when I was introducing you, is that Anne is unusual being one of the few other women that's running one of these major European think tanks. Is that something that is starting to change in that environment? Or is it something where there's just still a long way to go to even out the leadership? I would say a long way to go. I don't run Friends of Europe. I'm part of a team. There are many women in that team, some senior, some in less senior positions. But that's not the case in many think tanks in Brussels, in Europe generally, I would say. Often I'm the only senior woman in the room. Often I'm the only brown woman in the room. Often I'm the only woman with a strange exotic name in in the room. All of that needs to change. And I think It's also not just because of uh, moral consciousness or social awareness. It's because we need to get fresh thinking. And I'm sorry, in the geopolitical world, Ryan, you know this as well as I do, the agenda is set by men, okay? Some of them very macho men. Uh, All of this IR that I work on, I'm a professor also at College of Europe. I teach Asia-Europe relations. All of the books, all of the major articles, all of the thinking is dominated by a small group of white middle-aged men setting the agenda. Some are young as well, right? But the thinking, the overarching narrative on geopolitics, on the clash of civilizations, on the power games, you know, the great games, all of these are being set by men. And what I liked, and I have to insist on this, what I liked about Federica Mogherini, the EU high representative for foreign and security policy, is that she brought very forcefully, a woman's perspective into this discussion. And I know a lot of the men, especially in the United States, were sort of like, oh my God, she's, you know, she's so conciliatory, she's working with the dictators. But she's talking about a different way of looking at the international landscape and looking at global relations and talking about cooperative leadership, working together, collective responsibility, not us and them, not zero-sum games. And for me, that's refreshing. And I hope the European Union continues on that line because if it does, it's not just feminist foreign policy, it's the foreign policy. I think you might have thought of a new job for Federica Mogherini. She's going to need one in a few months' time and it sounds like she would fit in very well running a major think tank somewhere in the foreign policy world. So there you go, Federica, if you're listening. Sharda has a great tip for you, and we're, we're happy to sit down and brainstorm with you for that, that new job. Sharda, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you very much, Ryan. That was Ryan Heath talking to Sharda Islam of Friends of Europe, and coming next, the podcast panel. It's a warm welcome to Alva Finn. Hi, Alva. Hi, good morning. Hi, Lena Abarus. Good morning. And special guest, uh, once again, Politico's own Carmen Pound. Hi, Carmen. Hello. And if you hear a noise in the background, there is an alarm going off in the EU quarter. It could be because it's panic stations. They don't have a new commission president. They don't have a new council president. So people are obviously getting very alarmed. So let's start by talking about that. It seems like everybody's looking for leaders these days, the Tory party in the UK 
and the European Union institutions, Commission President, Parliament President, Council President, European Central Bank President, High Representative for Foreign Affairs, they're all up for grabs and nobody seems to be able to agree at the moment on who should get the jobs. Alva, what do you make of all this? It's a very different situation because the coalition will have to have more parties in it. Right, the kind of coalition that will govern the EU. Yes, and they call themselves the pro-European parties, right? So I think it's going to be more interesting than the last time around. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people have said this, including Juncker, have said, you know, they made a mistake the last time the EPP in taking most of the good jobs because they weren't really sharing power. Now they will have to. And it looks like, I mean, the candidacy of Manfred Weber keeps coming back and back and back. They're not going to let it go. But I mean, it's kind of a problem of their own making Mm. because they weren't fair the last time around and they didn't foresee that they would be, yeah, losing power. Mm. So to me, it's very interesting, but I think you always knew that it was going to take, I think it's going to take the rest of June for sure, Mm. maybe into July. Mm. And I, for one, think maybe Manfred Weber will just have to, bite the bullet and I would prefer if it was someone from you know the SND or but that's just my political leaning. Yeah it looks like a a little bit of a log jam. Anybody have any guess on who's going to end up in one of these jobs or who you think would be good for it? I am not making any more guesses or bets. I lost (laughs) all of them so. But those were on numbers what about people? (laughs) (laughs) I do still believe that Mr Barnier has a good chance. Okay you heard it here first. Another leadership issue at the moment is the leadership of the Conservative Party. Carmen, you've got an interesting take on this. Boris Johnson's the front runner. What do you make of him and his chances? I hope he wins. I know many people will not like that, but I think partially the push for Brexit also happened because Boris Johnson wanted to be a prime minister. Theresa May, you know, tried as hard as she could and she didn't manage to fulfill Brexit. And now, you know, let's just give Johnson a try. Maybe he's going to do it great, like he said, or maybe he's going to fail and people will see that. Mm. There was not much behind that strong campaigning that he had. So let him do it. Let him have it. What about what do you think Brussels will make of Boris Johnson if he comes here as prime minister and talks about renegotiating? Alva, how do you think he'll go down? It's going to be very interesting, I see, think, to see what the tactics are, because he has said time and time again that he will leave without a deal. And I think that no one ever believed Theresa May when she said it. And she gave in very quickly, right? I remember being like, there's a deal already. So maybe she wasn't the best, I think, the negotiator. But I think the deal that she negotiated must be the only one there is. So if they give in to him, they'll have to give in to everybody that they do trade agreements with, etc. So they're in a very difficult situation because I do think he isn't just playing chicken. He will Mm. pull them out without a deal. He's also now got this very, I mean, it's a good negotiating tactic as well. He's not, he says, I'm not going to pay the bill unless you renegotiate a deal. Now, that will create a very big problem to the size of about 39 billion euro. So I think they're going to be in a very difficult situation. And I hope that they won't open the negotiations again, at least not on the very important parts that are in it. But I don't think Boris Johnson is going to be happy with these renegotiating political declarations or whatever they Mm. were. Yeah, so I think it's going to be very interesting. Um, And I think a lot of people that I know in Brussels who are British are completely terrified that there's not going to be a deal and they're going to be, if they haven't already gotten passports from other countries, in a very 
difficult situation. Mm. Lena, what do you make of, of Boris? I mean, there is the, I guess the challenge for the EU is if he comes back and says, new prime minister, I want to renegotiate and they say no, then he's able to say, well, if it gets to no deal, that's on you because you have not been willing to look again at this deal. You've just been kind of intransigent. What do you think? I think we might as well witness a change from the European side. We will have a new commissioners and new presidents and new players. So President Juncker and his commission did a great job. They managed to reach to this point with the UK that this is the deal that we can offer and that's it. We will not renegotiate. But each leader has his new game and his new battle. So we never know. There is a fragmentation now within Europe. So imagine how would this be reflected in the next commission. Definitely it will impact the overall foreign policy and maybe a new Brexit deal and maybe a new stand from Europe. Mm, good point. There's, things are changing here too. Carmen, let's move to the other side of Europe, to Moldova. I thought you might be able to help us make sense of what's going on. There appear to be two governments in Moldova right now, one of which is talking, apparently seems to think that the highest priority is switching its embassy in Israel from one city to another. What's going on? Indeed, it took many people by surprise this weekend when we found out that there has been a government deal agreed between the pro-EU group called ACUM, which in Romanian, which is the language also used in Moldova, I've been a few times told off because I called it Moldovan, in Romanian means now, um, and the socialist group of the president, which is leaning pro-Russia. Someone in a column was calling it Europe's Venezuela, which I found was interesting comparison. So basically what happened is in February they had elections. There were no conclusive results. You had three parties that could form a coalition. You had ACUM, which is pro-EU, the governing party, the Democratic Party, also that has tried to present itself as a pro-EU party. At the same time, they are controlled by a man called Plahodniuk, who is widely seen as an oligarch in Moldova, and the Socialist Party of the President Igor Dodon. In the end, oddly enough, the pro-EU group ACUM and the Socialist Party formed a government. They had a deal. The governing party said that was illegal because they apparently missed the deadline. They refused to leave their offices. So now you basically have two competing governments. The Constitutional Court got involved and they suspended the President Dodon because he said that by allowing this, he did something illegal. And in the end, they named the, if you can call it the outgoing prime minister of the Democratic Party, president. And he immediately called for early elections. And right now it looks like no one can tell what's going to happen next. Another odd thing is that it seems the EU and Russia seem to be on the same page for once. The Russians have backed the government by the socialists and the pro-EU group ACUM. And the European Union seem to be going the same direction. Obviously, the Democratic Party still has the levers of power. They still control probably much of the public administration. And it's going to be interesting to see where this ends up. But it looks like from the international partners, they might not have the support that maybe they counted on. Uh, Okay, because obviously this is the EU's backyard, very, very, you know, on the borders of the EU. You know, I hear calls for the EU to get involved. You know, what's been the response so far? Where might it go from here? What do people say the EU should be doing here? The Romanian president actually called yesterday on the EU to try to find the negotiated agreement, maybe to intervene as sort of like referees in the fight. Obviously, the EU has given quite some money to Moldova and there will be an important voice at the table. So will Russia. 
So far, the EU hasn't responded to that. They did release a statement a few days ago. That was the typical EU statement calling for calm and dialogue. And the democratic government, which seems to them to have been the new government from the two groups, to be talking to them. So it's unclear whether the EU will want to intervene very forcefully in it. But maybe because they don't disagree with Russia like they disagreed on Ukraine, it might be easier to get a deal. I guess this is another EU foreign policy test. And it seems to me, as somebody else who follows the Balkans quite closely, that sometimes, you know, these seem like the kind of the relatively easy things for the EU to do. These are smallish countries close to the EU, next to the EU. You know, in the case in the Western Balkans, kind of surrounded by the EU, but they still seem to find it difficult, right? And often there's a temptation to concentrate on the big things like Iran and all of that. But these disputes, uh, difficulties on the borders of the EU, they seem to struggle even there to know what to do. I just hope it doesn't take forever for the EU to react. And we change from uh, statements and declarations and uh, tweets from high-level commissioners to really an action and go on the ground and talk with people. Moldova is extremely close and as you just mentioned, it, it has these borders that protects as well the EU. Um, so maybe they could apply a different policy and a different strategy. Is this an opportunity for EU foreign policy to speak for with one voice? Yeah, I think so. But they're in an easier scenario with this than they could have been, right? Because they're agreeing with their counterparts on the other side, right? So it shouldn't be so difficult. If elections have been called, I think the main thing is to make sure that they're free and fair. But then we know that some things that we've dealt with in our own elections, election interference will play a role. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if that isn't something that's playing into their response, you know, because I would be very worried that Russia would be manning their troll caves and (laughs) getting ready to really interfere in a new election. So I hope that that features in a statement, whatever statement they make. But usually when it comes to things like this, of leadership contests and etc., you look at the elections, you see what happened, you look at the deals, you see if they're fair. And if new elections have been called, they send monitors. I'm sure they're very anxious with the amount of money that they have put into Moldova that they don't want to see an outcome which puts a pro- Russian party at the helm because then in a way a lot of that money has been wasted I hope they respond but I don't think it's going to be a very different scenario to some of the things that they already say about situations like this Mm. Okay, we'll move on. One final thing, Lena, you wanted to talk about. It's an interesting question. I think a lot of people, governments and others have to deal with. Jared Kushner was here uh, recently, popped over to Brussels and saw Jean-Claude Juncker, among others. I think you were struck by the fact that he got an audience with the president of the European Commission when he's not the president of anything himself, right? But I guess this is when you have the US administration where President Trump has put his family members in very kind of powerful positions, either formal or informal, If somebody like that turns up, you know, do you say, sorry, too busy, you know, got to see the Prime Minister of Albania? No, it's that there is a protocol that you have to follow. The institutions survive because there are protocols. It's very weird. Everyone is questioning many world leaders, many governments, even a very controversial personality like Mr. Kushner just decides to come to Brussels and oops. I meet President Juncker. Uh, Protocol-wise, he should have met advisors, people of his level. Uh, Regardless, he is the son-in-law of the president uh, of the U.S. This is the EU. This is the EU is they apply values, they apply protocol on everything. And so that was surprising. What could have been the outcome of this meeting as well? What was the gesture 
lots of question marks. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting question. Is protocol kind of for the birds in this kind of day and age with social media and hierarchies breaking down? Or as Lena says, the EU goes on and on about a kind of rules-based order. The rules is presidents meet presidents and advisors meet advisors. Carmen? I think it is a bit obsolete, maybe as much as we want to keep some standards. It's hard. I mean, Trump himself has has breached so many protocols and appended so many rules. I guess the EU just wants to be able to engage substantially with the administration and they might decide to just oversee the fact that Kushner doesn't have such a high level and, you know, meet him. Maybe they also think that he is influential with the president, that the president listens to him, and it's maybe smart for them to meet him too. Mm. I've been around in civil society for a long time, and I can't remember a time when we ever got to meet Juncker. Mm. I think there was a time when I was working more in the health field where he wanted to talk to some of the health NGOs about things like air pollution and etc. But it never materialised. So yeah, I think it's a bit disappointing when you see someone who's, I mean, he's technically in Trump's cabinet. I think we could equate those two things. Mm. But then on the other side, I think that in general, Trump is quite hard to speak with. Juncker seems to have had a way with him. But I would say that maybe this is a very individual case because sometimes it's easier to talk to people around Trump than it is to talk to Trump himself because people who have his ear can kind of, you know, work. And we've seen this coming out in in the media a lot, you know, that his advisors have a huge role to play in tempering sometimes Mm. Trump's very hardline views on things. So I'd say that it's a very individual case. And I think that would probably be the reason behind it is that you think that you're going to be able to get through to Trump through Kushner. But yeah, it is a bit frustrating when he never meets with civil society or the heads of civil society. Okay, well, as we've uh, discovered this week, Jean-Claude Juncker's a huge political fan. He's even going to write a playbook (laughs) for us uh, one day. So I'm sure he listens to the podcast. So the memo has been delivered. Uh, Jean-Claude, time to spend some more time with civil society. A panellist one day. A panellist, yeah, maybe we could get him on. uh, Yeah, JC Confidential. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) on that note, uh, thanks to Lena, Alva and uh, Carmen (laughs) and to producer Weidong Lin. And we'll be back next week with another EU Confidential. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.